Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. Um, I'm George, one of the pastors here at the Mount. Um, We're going to be reading Galatians 5, 1 through 6 this morning. We should be hopefully back up there in a little bit. Let me go ahead and read. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Will you pray with me? Father, would you speak through this passage this morning? God, may we trust you. May we trust your son who lived a perfect life, who died the perfect sacrificial death, who rose again to advocate, to be, be our advocate before the Father, who is king and coming judge. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in us, that you would make us your people, that we would trust wholly in what Christ has done and not in anything that we might um, do on our own. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about circumcision today, so prepare to be a little bit uncomfortable, maybe. If you need a definition for circumcision, I'm going to ask you to ask Brian after the message is through. Circumcision is not a topic we talk about a lot in the church anymore, mostly because of passages like this. So we may find Paul's intensity here and elsewhere a little odd, but we talk a lot about what it means to be a Christian, what a Christian looks like, how someone becomes a Christian what a Christian doesn't or shouldn't look like, and then maybe even what a church looks like made up of Christians. Uh, If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, then I want to welcome you. I'm I'm really actually very glad that you're here, and I I hope you've gotten a glimpse already um, of the awesome God that we serve. of a people who truly loves Jesus. You probably have a lot of opinions and impressions about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, I pray that you have good examples of Christ-hearted people. Maybe that's why you're even here this morning. 
but you may also have a lot of wrong impressions. Maybe you have some poor examples. Maybe you've been given the impression that Christianity is all about a set of rules, all about doing the right thing to earn a place in heaven. Maybe this even colors a view of Christians as judgmental and hypocritical, demanding a moral standard that we rarely, if ever, will meet. But we Christians often don't understand or practice our faith much better than that. We may live day in, day out, as if Christianity is all about what we do. We might act like being a Christian means keeping up with the laundry list of rules that distinguish ourselves from the world. We might equate our faith with spiritual practices, prayer, attending church, Bible reading, fasting, or tithing. We may find ourselves frustrated with God thinking that he's withholding some blessing because we don't get our act together. We may measure our faith or even other believers' faith by where and when we were baptized, whether we've had the right spiritual experiences or whether we attend the right Bible studies. It's all too easy to drift into this system of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, and lose sight of Jesus. It's all too easy to attempt the Christian life, attempt, not accomplish, but attempt the Christian life without turning to Christ, the one who truly sees us for who we are, sinners in desperate need of help. And Paul sees the Galatians headed down this very path. Having believed the good news about Jesus, having experienced the Spirit in action, they seem to be defecting to what can only be described as a false gospel. Paul's opponents are suggesting that Paul isn't being totally truthful with them. He's not giving them the whole story. The false teachers and their false gospel proclaim that to be God's people really experience what it is to be in relationship with God, the Galatians, they need to be circumcised. Sounds plausible, even biblical even. They point to Abraham and say, see, it's right there. The circumcision comes with a hefty price, and Paul is going to make that clear as we read this passage. So first, let's look at what Christ's victory bought. As we've been going through um, our Old Testament in, in Tabor School, or as we've been walking through Galatians, or maybe in your own reading of the Bible, you might have taken a pause to wonder, who is the ultimate enemy of God's people? Or to state it another way, what, what is it that Christ overcomes at the cross? Who or what is the ultimate bad guy? In the opening chapters of Genesis, we're given at least three potential options. Sin, death or the curse, the serpent. First sin. Um, we, we all stand condemned as sinners. Adam and Eve sinned, and we sin likewise. Now one of us can claim to be without sin. To even suggest that we're without sin is to call God a liar, and that's sin. Scripture teaches that Sin brings God's wrath, we sung about it here a little bit ago, a righteous response to what can only be described as wicked rebellion and self-worship. 
As enemies go, sin is no slouch. It flows from our hearts, from deep within us. It's part of our fallen nature. And even the good that we do is laced with notes of selfish desire, pride, envy, misdirected worship. It's all sin. Enemy number two is death. And we might even, as I already said, say the curse more generally. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. But even those in the world who would deny sin as a reality tend to respond to the curse strongly. They tend to respond to death with everything that it is to be human. How many of our prayers are the result of death's encroachment in our lives? My family spent the better part of the last two weeks fighting COVID. I know that a lot of y'all have been sick with various things. Death rips our attention away from a loving God. It works anxiety and fear in our lives. We spend countless hours and countless dollars resisting that constant drumbeat marching towards that grave. Enemy number three is the serpent, that great liar, the accuser of God's people, Satan. The Bible speaks of the world being under the dominion of this enemy. He tempts us to sin and seeks to devour and malign God's good gifts. And Peter tells us that our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith. We could spend a lot of time talking about which of these is the greater enemy. Which is it that God has really taken care of? But let's just say it's all three defeated by the work of Christ on the cross. All are defeated in his resurrection from the grave, and all are powerless as he sits enthroned in heaven. Sin dealt with, death loses its sting. Death defeated, Satan loses his power over us. In one fell swoop, freedom is secured. And that brings us to verse 1, where Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's an amazing truth. Christ has set us free. In the gospel, we see not only what we are freed from, sin and death and Satan, but what we're freed to, what we're freed for, freedom. But... Paul isn't talking about freedom from sin or death or Satan, as glorious as those freedoms are. The yoke of slavery here is bondage to the law of Moses. And this is the moment that many of us start scratching our heads. Isn't the law a good thing, Paul? Why so negative about the law? And let's be clear, our intuitions are right. The law was intended as a good thing. It was a blessing for Israel. What other nation had God's instructions as their founding charter? None. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 reads, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They were intended for their good. Near the end of that chapter, Deuteronomy 6, 24 through 25, he ends saying, The Lord commanded us to do all these statues to, statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Those are some pretty positive things to say about this law. So we have to admit it was intended for their good. And it's good for our instruction and correction, just as Paul teaches in 2 Timothy. It's part of Scripture. It's part of the word that God has given us to lead us to faith and help us grow more like Christ. We do ourselves no service by ignoring the law or treating it as something from the past. It informs us about creation, about man's purpose in life, about marriage. It offers the first glimpses of the gospel. It teaches us about sacrifice. It reveals God's character and God's name. And it shows us the promise and mission of God. But don't miss that they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't. The majority of the Old Testament is a repeated witness to Israel's failure to keep the commands, despite warning, rebuke, and God's amazing patience. The law is good. It's an expression of God's character, his own goodness towards his people. It pointed to their needs for rescue from sin and God's provision of a Savior. It called out the awful results of sin and pointed to the need for shed blood and a spotless sacrifice. But Israel used it not for those purposes, but as a means of boasting. They ignored its warnings. They rejected its call for a circumcised heart. And the Mosaic Law twisted into nationalistic propaganda is a terrible thing. It's not good news. It is not gospel. It's terrible news. It is an unbearable burden. And God never intended it to be used that way. We get a small taste of this even in Jesus. We read in Matthew 11, which we talked just briefly about even during prayer this morning. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, then, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. We get that same imagery, this yoke. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled all its obligations. He is God the Father's final word and the only perfect sacrifice. He's the eternal priest and the promised king, 
And his invitation to rest is the invitation to freedom. All those who labor under the law find only bondage. But those who trust Jesus find peace for their souls. They find rest and they find freedom. So, believers, stand firm. Don't settle for the message of a false gospel built on empty promises. Don't give those who watch over you reason to worry and wonder. Live in and by the gospel. Make it central to your life. It is central to your life. Trust Jesus for your right standing with God. Trust Jesus who gives the Spirit to all who ask. That's exactly what he's talking about, asking for the Spirit. Trust Jesus to build his church and to unite his people as one through that Spirit. Now, with Paul, let's step back just a little. Standing firm implies that there's a choice in front of us. Up until this point in the letter, Paul has been hinting at it. He's been establishing the fundamental difference between life before Christ and life after Christ. Now he cuts to the point. Circumcision. They've been flirting with Judaism as non-Jews. In Galatians 4, he says that they've been observing days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about the Jewish calendar. It's a gateway drug into Judaism, as it were. But if they really want to be God's people, circumcision is the natural next and final step. It's what Abraham was commanded to do, and it's what Israel was commanded to do in the law. So knowing the importance of what they're contemplating, Paul gets personal. Look, I, Paul, say to you, look, it's me talking to you. You know me. You know what I taught. You know what you experienced of the Spirit under my teaching. You know what the gospel looked like as I lived it before you. And what did Paul teach? He, he taught the gospel. Jesus crucified the resurrection witnessed and proclaimed, the Lord victorious, the Spirit confirming and dwelling in God's people, Jew and Gentile alike. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith, he says. It's a personal appeal. Will you trust me who suffered in your presence or will you trust these false teachers who are just trying to get ahead to use you to bolster their arguments? Make them feel good about their wrong decisions. Paul doesn't actually have anything against circumcision. Strong language. But in Acts we see he has Timothy circumcised before because he's, he's half Jewish and will be doing ministry among the Jews. Circumc circumcision itself is not the problem. In this passage he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Simply not important. But the problem is if they trust in circumcision to grant entry to God's people, if they trust in circumcision to give right standing before God, they will be making a grave mistake. If their hope of righteous living in this wicked age is circumcision, they will find their hands tied. It's an all-or-nothing decision with huge implications for the gospel. 
And so we continue reading in verse 2, Paul writes, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul envisions two benefactors, the law with circumcision as the front door and Christ by faith. To choose one is to spurn the other. These are alternate pathways to membership of the people of God. But only one works. The other is doomed to failure. Paul puts it in the terms of advantage. There is no benefit in accepting circumcision. All it will do is bind you to a law that the Jewish, Jewish nation couldn't even keep themselves. What's more, the sacrifices which looked ahead to Jesus' perfect sacrifice are now obsolete. The partial and the temporary outmoded by the complete and the final. So the only hope for them if they're going to be circumcised is perfect obedience. To fail to keep even one point of the law, he says, is to be cast outside the camp, ejected from God's people like an uncircumcised Gentile. It'll put them right back where they started. It's of no advantage to them to be circumcised. There's simply no upside here. In order to redeem the law and make it more easily teachable, it's often broken up into three parts. We talk about the moral, the civil, the ceremonial law. We say the civil law refers to those laws that tell Israel how to behave towards one another as a set-apart people. It legislates things like the economy. It legislates care for the needy, the widow, the orphan, the slave, and the foreigner. The ceremonial law tells Israel how to approach God through festivals and sacrifices. It tells them how to be clean before a holy, perfect God. And finally, the moral law teaches them timeless principles about how to relate to one another and God. But the reality is the law is hard to divide this way. The law itself commands total obedience and does not distinguish the moral from the civil and the civil from the ceremonial. And Paul is in line with the Jews of his day in teaching that circumcision obligates one to obey the whole law, not just part, not just the moral inner core of the law, all of it. If the Galatians accept circumcision, they are obligated to keep it all, all. Could you do it? Could you obey it all? They can't either. To attempt it is not only foolhardy, but it's to reject their need for Christ. That's why Paul is so emphatic. To accept circumcision is to be severed from Christ. It's to reject his offer of forgiveness in an attempt to make it on our own. Beyond all this, on display in the gospel is God's grace and mercy. God has offered something so free and wonderful and so amazing it's the gift of a holy, merciful, forgiving Savior. And so to approach God on legal terms, thinking, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to show you on my own, 
is to simply disregard his character and revealed will. To approach God as if we can wow him by our righteous living is a slap in the face. It's a rejection of grace. It's a denial of the need for the work of Christ, as if he died for nothing. It fails to recognize the depth of our sin and our rebellion, our need for a Savior. To accept circumcision is ironically to behave like Israel in the Exodus. They've seen God's mighty acts of deliverance. They've walked through the water, but they grumble and seek to return to Egypt. Wasn't life grand under Pharaoh? Didn't we have meat all that we could eat? Didn't we have everything we ever wanted? The Lord's promises of land and rest are in front of them, but they envision traveling back, the good old days. Bondage. Christianity is not like every other religion. First, let's be clear that religion is not a bad word. Christianity is a religion. What does James say? He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But religion is not what gets us right with God. The gospel of Christ offers something both easier and harder than every other religion hopes for. It's easier because all we have to do is repent of our sin and believe the good news. It's that simple. Jesus promised himself to all those who will do that. We don't, we can't work off a ledger read with sin. There's no karma. There's no penance to be done in order to maintain our right standing with the Father. The Spirit confirms and comforts those who have repented. We stand in Christ's righteousness united in his death and his resurrection, that new life. But it is hard. It flies in the face of all of our sinful inclinations. The gospel stands opposed to our creaturely comforts, our idolatry, our greed, our self-love, and our hatred for anything that stands in, in the way of us doing whatever we want. What the false teachers offer as hope is just of vapor. It's the gospel that stands firmly. Paul includes himself in the message, reminding them that he too is a recipient of grace. He too, though a Jew, trusts Jesus, not his circumcision. His circumcision isn't his entrance fee into the people of God. No, the spirit by faith is what matters. He writes them, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Rather than circumcision justifying us, it is the Spirit and Christ. It is the cutting of the heart, not the flesh, that matters. The law itself envisioned this very need for a better circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22, Moses tells Israel that they must circumcise their hearts if they would be obedient and faithful. He knew right from the start this was the need, not just the circumcision of Abraham, but the circumcision of their hearts. Otherwise, their attempts 
to keep the law were going to fail, resulting in all the curses of the book. At the beginning of Jeremiah's message, he reminds Judah of their need to circumcise their hearts. And he even ties it, he says, if only they will circumcise their hearts, the nations will find the blessing promised through and to Abraham. Circumcision, the heart, is a work of the Spirit. It's the promise of the new covenant. It's the Spirit that unites us and gives life to faith. It brings hope as we wait for our final vindication, the verdict of righteousness, my people. Circumcision gives us no such hope. The Spirit's work does. So what are you trusting this morning? Is it Christ or is it something related maybe, tangential, but not Christ? Are you trusting God's word or are you trusting your Bible reading plan? Is your baptism what saved you? Or does your baptism reflect and preach your union with Christ through the Spirit? Are you trusting in the regular intake of the Lord's Supper to deal with your sin, or is your sin dealt with finally at the cross? Do you look to Christ's return with foreboding, hoping you did enough good to make the cut? Or does Christ's return fill you with joy because you know that you abide in Christ and are resting on his promises? It's worth mentioning that Paul does not bring up baptism here. He could have. He could have said, you don't need to be circumcised. Baptism is equivalent now. He doesn't. And it isn't. In the New Covenant, the corollary to circumcision is not baptism. It is the Spirit's work on the heart through faith in Christ. It's circumcision of the heart, just what the law said we needed all along. How do you identify a Christian? The Spirit by faith, is in them working through love. The Spirit provides all that is required for our justification and for our sanctification, our growing more like Christ. Paul puts the emphasis on faith working through love. Faith comes first, then we love. The Spirit helps us at the start, and it keeps us through every storm and trial to our faith. And as we are united to Christ, as we grow in love for one another, the church grows stronger. The residents are reading, and I meant to grab it, the church this month. Um, it's a great introduction to ecclesiology. Um, and I encourage you, go to get a copy, read it. It's a great book. Um, at one point, it addresses the marks of a church. And we've been talking maybe the marks or how do you identify Christians. This is how do you identify a church. And the two are not unrelated. So, there are four marks that are given historically for what makes a church. The church is one, it's holy, it's universal, and it's apostolic. To say that the church is one is to say that God is one. And we worship and serve Him alone. Ephesians, which Corey read, it says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What the false teachers present 
offering circumcision as the road into God's family is nothing but to present a schism in God himself. It, it sets the father and the son in disagreement about what Christ came to do, how he was going to make a people for his own glory. What they do is make a church that is not one but split, those who are committed, who accept circumcision, and those who are second-class believers, not really the people of God. To say that the church is holy is to remind ourselves that the church is called to God's holiness and cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus. It's to soak in the Spirit's continual work of making us more like Christ. What the false teachers offer is the cross wedded to the law. They, they reject the Spirit's power to make us holy and replace it with a human attempt to force our way into the kingdom. To say that the church is universal is to say that the offer of the gospel is for all people, all nations. Christ is building his church and the blessing of Abraham goes to all, just as God said it would. What the false teachers offer instead is, you've got to be a Jew. That's the nation. You must conform to man's expectation of what faith looks like. It's not universal. To say that the church is apostolic is to say that the church is founded on the gospel given by Jesus to his disciples. It is to rest in the shared witness to Christ's life, death, resurrection, and glory. But to follow these false teachers is to look for a back door into God's people. It's a rejection of the need for a Savior. It severs us from Christ. The message of these false teachers is anything but apostolic. The false teachers in pushing circumcision are rejecting Christ and rejecting his bride. They're corrupting the gospel, not helping the Galatians grow in maturity and faith. So, what, what are the marks of a Christian? John and Paul agree that Christians remain in the vine, to use a metaphor. They abide in the word. They're united with Christ and united to his people. Christian, you, you have the gift of the Spirit and both a, as both a present witness to Christ at work at you, in you, and the guarantee of your future hope. It's faith working through love. So what are we to take away? We often want to look for application, and I'm afraid this one is going to be not what you probably post on social media. It's not going to be something you tweet. Don't get circumcised. That's his point. Don't get circumcised. But we can go a little deeper than that. Don't put your faith in what you can do in your own power. Rather, instead, believe in Jesus, God's one and only Son. Is it really that simple? He says, yes, yes, it is. Will you pray? Father, would you, would you work in our hearts? God, will we listen to your spirit? Will we know peace and rest because he has saved us? He's, he's accomplished everything to win salvation for us 
to rip us out of sin's dominion, to rip us out of death's dominion, to rip us out of Satan's dominion, to rip us out of a law's grip that promised only more death and destruction. Father, we pray that you would make us your people, that we would grow in love for one another, that we would let the Spirit lead, and that we would grow more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.